It's great to be with you, uh, and uh, I'm very honored to be here to speak this morning. Just so you know, my plane to Portland uh, starts to board at 11.30, so as soon as I'm done, I'm running to the airport. It's not because I don't like you. It's just because uh, those people out there like me enough to pay me and they expect me to be there tomorrow. All right, well, I want to begin with a uh, text, familiar scripture. Most folks, this is the call of Abraham from, uh, at this point, Abram in uh, Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. Let's see if we can get this. Is. Dynasty, 
being a dynasty or founding a dynasty um, and establishing a great house. Now, I've, I've written about productive households, and that's more or less what I've known for. I've written three books on the subject. And uh, what you have with a productive household is an understanding of the household. It's, it's a place where you work together alongside each other. If you have an opportunity to acquire productive property, you can work on that property together. But even if you don't, you're kind of in a subsistence economy and you're just kind of, you know, working to uh, serve other members of the family and strengthen it. Um, it takes many, it takes many forms. You know, a lot of guys who are tradesmen who, you know, own their trade or their business, you know, bring their sons into the work when they're old enough to help. But even if you don't have a situation like that, homeschooling is a kind of uh, productive enterprise uh, that is subsistence in character, and it's intended to obviously strengthen the household by educating children. And if you're remarkably successful, and it does happen, well, we had a couple of guys here last night who were remarkably successful, who had, I know, based on the conversations I've had with them, modest, sort of run-of-the-mill, Childhoods. But they are in a position, each of them, to establish a kind of dynasty, a great house. The problem uh, with money is that you can have too much as well as too little. You always have money problems. This is one of the problems with money. <laughs> now, now, if you don't have enough money, you can't imagine the problem of, of having too much money. But if you have a, a lot of money, you have the problem of what do I do with it and how do I make certain that the money doesn't ruin people? Because that can happen. Um, over the course of my life, because I've kind of had feet in both worlds, both kind of the downer outer world and the other sort of highly privileged, what I refer to as up and outer world, I can see it. I remember I had a friend who was in Boston, his name is Roger Dewey, and he had an organization called Christian Servant Justice, and in that organization he he worked among the down and out for years, and then he just disappeared. And then I came across him uh, one day, and I said, what are you up to, Roger? And he told me he was a chaplain at a prep school, in an extremely expensive elite prep school in New England. I said, Roger, how do you go <laughs> from you know, working in the inner city amongst the people who have not, uh, to you know, working amongst uber-rich kids who have no idea what it's like not to have things? He said, the problems are the same. Folks don't understand that the, those folks, those kids are growing up without a father. Most of the time, the father's on the road. They've got drug issues. Drug addiction is a real problem amongst the elite. Um, and, uh, you know, basically, uh, they find themselves with many of the same problems. But the, the difference is, is they got a lot of money, a lot of connections, and uh, great education. So what that means is they take a long time to hit bottom, a lot longer than the down and out. And so the reality check just isn't there for them like it is for a lot of other folks. Now, um, like I noted, uh, my challenge is to reconcile you to the idea that, that great houses and dynasties are actually something that uh, is uh, worth uh, I guess defending <laughs> and even promoting. Now, I think the first thing to note about great houses is they're is they're natural. Um, I've seen them. I've had the privilege of knowing people who are uh, who are members of a great house. In fact, the book that I wrote, uh, Man of the House, was actually greenlighted for publication by Gwendolyn Herder which is, I imagine, somebody was somebody I, I imagine you've never heard of. But she's from the Herder family of Germany, the oldest privately held publishing house in the world, Herder and Herder of Germany. Uh, seven generations, that publishing house has been the same family. They published the Pope, they published the Dalai Lama, they published uh, Henry Nowen, and they were going to publish me. I know that sounds pretty crazy. <laughs> but uh, the guy, they started a, a division in the publishing house, uh, they're Catholics, Roman Catholics, so they had started a division for sort of conservative books. And the guy that was the editor of that for that division was a guy named John Smirak. Now, if you knew John, you just knew it was a number, just a just kind of a matter of time before he blew everything up. And 
after my book had been, you know, I had the contract and I actually submitted the book, the inevitable happened and John did what he always does. So John is like a, he's sort of like a Don Rickles meets Pope Benedict. He really is that way. In fact, he's on the uh, Eric Metaxas show all the time. So if you if you listen to Eric Metaxas, you, you probably, because I think he's on like once a week, because they're buddies that go back to Yale. And anyway, so uh, he blew up, he blew up the place, and so he became like persona non grata, and I was, you know, covered with the debris and became persona non grata. <laughs> then they brought in a new editor who was a liberal guy out of Berkeley, and he wanted me to rewrite the book. I, that, I, that was a fun conversation. And uh, he said, I want it to be more like chicken soup for the soul for men. I said, no, no, no. Uh, you, don't, you don't get it, do you? Uh, anyway, so that led to a long story that's not really relevant. But anyway, uh, you know, the fact that, that that concern, herder and herder, has been in the same family for seven generations, I think is significant. And, and, there's, and there's more of that out there than I think many of us know. Uh, we're kind of sort of blinded by the by the neon lights of corporate America. We don't see just how significant great houses are, even there. Uh, the Wilson family, who I know, I mean, they're not like uber wealthy, but they they have a significant uh, influence uh, in uh, the Christian world. And um, the, the house that they enjoy dwelling in was not actually founded by Doug. Founded by his father, Jim. I got to meet Jim. Uh, he's no longer with us, but Jim's dream has been carried forward by all of his sons, even Evan, who's kind of the black sheep. I've had a chance to meet him. But anyway, uh, they all bought into it and they're all carrying it forward. Uh, and I think the thing to keep in mind as we think about all this is that uh, there's a quote from Jacques Lul. Jacques Lul is a great. Uh, Formed sort of social critic from France, he said, the elites you will have with you always. He's obviously making a play on Jesus' statement, the poor you will have with you always. It's just simply the fact. If the question is not whether or not you're going to have elites, it's just uh, are they worthwhile? <laughs> that's, that's the question. Uh, are they the kind of people you could admire and uh, submit to? So, uh, it, it's actually, though, not just natural and inevitable, and everywhere, I mean, every place you go in the world, you find great houses, uh, but it's God's idea. That's why it's natural and inevitable, <laughs> and everywhere you go. Uh, Abraham's house was a great house. Even at this point in the story, at the call, it was a significant enterprise that he oversaw, the people he acquired in Iran. Now, we know just two chapters later that he was able to muster 318 fighting men from his household alone. Those weren't his kids. Those were the, uh, the lesser houses that were sheltered by the great house who were loyal to him and were in covenant with him. And if you think about it, you know, you're talking about men who are probably between the ages of maybe 16, maybe 18, and maybe 40. So we're not even talking about 50%. We're talking probably more like 10% of the total household who went out to fight to rescue Lot. So it's a pretty significant thing. And in covenant theology, uh, we benefit uh, because we belong to a great house, household of God, right? Uh, and when we think about the covenant, Often we think about it exclusively in the terms of federal headship, which is just fine. But we ought to think about it also within the framework of succession. Uh, each of us as fathers ought to be thinking about who succeeds, who's going to follow, and so forth. And households, great houses, can be very powerful. In fact, what is a kingdom but the rule of a great house? There's a father the king, right? <laughs> There's a mother, the queen, right? Have you ever thought about these terms? Of course not, because we think about government through the lens of you know contemporary standards and practices. But really, a kingdom is a great house sheltering lesser houses. 
And loyalty is what's expected. Uh, it's not necessarily that everybody's on the payroll, although there can be that kind of thing. Patronage is, is often factored in to the relationship between the lesser houses and the great house. Um, and there's, a, I think, an important thing that we need to sort of, sort of comb out at this point, and that is that what we have uh, with the great house is si significantly different than what we see with, say, a corporation. Corpus is the Latin that we derive the word corporation from. It means body. Uh, and in our legal uh, system, a corporation is a person. Uh, it can be sued, it can sue, it's got that kind of status. Of course, the difference between you and, and me and a corporation is that the corporation has got a lot of power, a lot of people, a lot of resources, a lot of time, that kind of thing. Uh, so it's a bit unfair. but. Uh, if we think about it strictly in terms of you know, individuals and how they relate to corporations, but we, we shouldn't confuse a corporation, this legal entity, with a great house. Great houses are distinct. Um, for one thing, great houses don't assimilate. Um, corporations are like the Borg. They really are. They uh, grow as they break down other institutions, isolate people, and then incorporate them, incorporate the, the picture into the corp corpus, the body, and they grow. One of the things that is sort of lost on people is that some of the people who were most enthusiastic for feminism uh, at the turn of the 19th and, and century into the 20th century were uh, the uh, robber barons, the, the great business concerns. Why? Women are very capable. They can do all kinds of things. Um, and there they are, uh, you know, in households, and we want to free them up so that they can help us grow and be more profitable and so forth. Um, households, on the other hand, uh, because they have a sense of, you know, their limitations, this is where our house ends and other houses begin. Uh, they are more uh, conducive to uh, respecting and regarding the boundaries of other houses. And so, even though there is a, a sense in which a great house provides shelter to lesser houses, there's no confusion, uh, and there's no actually, uh, there's no interest in breaking down another house in order to assimilate it and make it a part of the great house. Uh, and I think that's something that we need to recover in the way we think about things. That doesn't mean that corporations are necessarily bad. It just means that we need to think about what we're using when we use a corporate uh, structure. Uh, we need to use it as a, we need to use corporations as tools uh, rather than a replacement for the houses that we live in. And by the way, so corporations are more than happy to let you sleep there, eat there, you know, spend all your Leisure time there. I have a friend whose son, bright computer programmer, went to work for Google straight out of Wheaton College. Uh, and he was all excited because his son never needed to go home. He could sleep at Google. He could eat for free at Google. He could play ping pong <laughs> with his fellow workers at Google. He's still unmarried, by the way. I'm talking like 10 years that this has been going on. Now, dealing with a bad seed problem, we all know that things can go bad. Rayable, right? Rayable, Jeroboam, all those bone boys. <laughs> you know, what you got uh, with the Rayable problem, you know, is you got the grandson. Here's David, founds a great house, everything's going great. He's got a son who's sort of, you know, golden boy, starts well, doesn't finish so well. And then you got, Rehoboam. So what's Rehoboam do with when he, when he, you know, he's uh, installed as king? He says, he, so, so his uh, father's advisors would say, hey, what you want to do at this point, lad, is cut taxes. The people will love you. Your father was pretty, pretty demanding. If you lighten up a little bit, people will love you and you're, gonna, you're just going to have a great time. And then he went to his uh, frat buddies. <laughs> Guys, he spent you know his childhood with who actually had no contact apparently with like regular people outside of their circle, 
And they said, oh, that'll make you look weak. You don't want to look weak. You got to come out strong. And then you know the rest of the story. At that point, uh, he raises taxes. Jeroboam, who's just been waiting for this moment, <laughs> uh, he rallies the 10 tribes in the north and said, and what is, what's, his, what's his statement? What's, what does he say? We have no portion in David. Now, we read that and we say, what in the world's that? No portion in David. If you understood the nature of the great house and how the lesser houses are sheltered by that house, you would understand that when it comes time to divvy up the goods, we're not getting anything. Why should we stick around? And so what do they say? To each man to his own house. And it breaks down. Now, only one household is a term. You've heard the statement, you know, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. Uh, you know, the only household that is really going to last forever is Christ's household, right? We, we just need to accept that. But does that mean establishing a household and becoming a great house is a, is a waste of time? You know, if you, if you had that mindset, you'd say, well, why should I eat dinner? I'm only going to die anyway. Might as well just die now. <laughs> there are some good things that houses uh, can do. Um, but, you know, there, the, the problem of, you know, what about, you know, this rotten kid? <laughs> you know, the, the prospect of, of having a kid that you don't even like. You know, what do you do about that? Um, there are some non-solutions. Uh, one non-solution is not have kids. And that seems to be an option that more and more people are opting for these days with this sort of post-millionism that we see in our society. Or you don't leave the estate to that. <coughs> You saw that, you've probably heard, I remember, maybe it's not as much kind of common knowledge, but I remember there was a kind of a big deal when, when Bill Gates announced that he was not going to leave his estate to his kids. He was going to give him a little, you know, I don't know how many kids he's got, but it's going to give him like small inheritance, like maybe a couple million dollars, <laughs> and then, you know, let them fend for themselves. And, and in a way, you could say, well, good for him, but I just don't think he believes in households, just generally speaking. Um, and uh, certainly has a kind of anti-human, anti-natal disposition. He thinks there are just too many people in the world, and uh, he's out to make certain that there are fewer of them. <laughs> um, now, you can always establish a charitable foundation. A lot of people do that. You know, Ford, Pugh, Lilly, you know, those are names that you often hear thrown out or, or mentioned, you know, when you listen to the national, you know, national public radio or PBS, this program has been sponsored by Pew Charitable Trust. Now, the problem with that is that there is a belief that the charter and the rules will keep the moral purpose intact, and I want you to know that is not the case. They always go off the rails. Always go off the rails. Always go off the rails, and there's a reason, and that's because professional philanthropists don't care. They're tuned into what's the latest, coolest, neatest thing that everybody wants to do, and they're going to bend the rules, and they're going to try to shoehorn their projects. I can tell you this from personal experience. Harold J. Pugh, who founded Pugh Charitable Trust, uh, was uh, a primary uh, benefactor to our patron of Grove City College. There's actually a, a statue of a guy right there by the chapel that his sons built. And uh, that statue, he's got a little straw hat, kind of looks kind of dapper, little bow tie. But he was the, you know, he owned Sun Oil. Lots of money. And it was, in fact, you know, at the time that, that I had some uh, interactions with the people who worked there, the largest foundation in the world. He was a very conservative fellow, Harold and I want you to know that even in the early 90s when I was dealing with him, that was no longer the case for Pew Charitable Trust. Pew is now just another institution funding leftist causes. So it wasn't enough to just to set up a bunch of rules. And by the way, they do more harm than good in many situations. Have you ever seen the film Poverty, Inc.? It's a great documentary. I strongly recommend it. Poverty, Inc. Poverty, 
Inc. obviously means the business of you know, uh, you know, poverty. <laughs> and the problem with, generally speaking, nonprofit organizations, uh, by and large, uh, that are dealing with poverty issues, uh, is that there's really no incentive to solve the problem. You ever thought about that? Let's say we solve poverty. What happens to all the people who worked in the foundation that solved poverty problems? They're out of work. They're out of work. That's what, what happens. Uh, the organization. When was the last time you, you heard of a nonprofit organization that was working with poverty issues say, hey, solve. Solve it. We're good. We're dissolving the organization. Sending the money to other organizations that need it, you know, the museum down the street, maybe you know, King's Cross Church. <laughs> We're just going to just redistribute all these funds. It doesn't happen. So, with those things in mind, I want to actually make a, a stronger case for great houses in our time. So, why we need them. And uh, the reason we need them is that the open society, the society that we've taken for granted for a long time, is failing. And everybody knows it. There's no mystery. And by the way, I'm not the only person that's been thinking about this. Uh, what I'm going to read to you actually comes from a Substack. Uh, Substack's that marvelous place that, you know, different heterodox writers publish <laughs> their stuff. Uh, and uh, this is from uh, Myth Pilot, a guy named Paulus. So even being on Substack is not anonymous enough for him. So uh, he's got a series of posts that he made on the subject of establishing great houses and why we need them. And he begins uh, with something uh, that he asks us to imagine that's not too difficult to imagine because many of us do remember it. He says, now imagine you are a middle class family in 2020 and public life has been closed by your government. There are barriers to crossing borders. You cannot gather in public. You cannot send your children to school. And unless you have a laptop, you cannot work. If you have a small business that relies on foot traffic, you are in danger of losing it. By the way, I have, I have friends who lost their businesses during that time. Furthermore, through some madness, government officials declined to enforce public safety. Downtown shopping centers, which used to be areas of recreation, are now open air crime zones. Uh, Predated by our, our predicated uh, by roving mobs, and uh, you get the picture. This is a situation that many of us have been reflecting on for some time now, and it seems as though, in effect, every structure of social protection between you and the state or between you and the mob has been removed, and it's that sense of vulnerability that is uh, working to sort of reshuffle uh, the population. I had an interesting exchange with, with Tim Keller a few months back before he died. And I, and I lived in you know, Boston during the crack epidemic in you know, some pretty tough areas. I was mugged. I was in a gang fight. You know, I got all kinds of stories. But um, you know, it's starting to feel like those days again. I made a post on Twitter to that effect. It says, good old days of the late you know, 1980s, early 90s are back. And Keller is, oh, no, they're not. Look at the statistics. Well, you know what you can say about statistics, you know, lies and statistics. <laughs> you know, anyway, you can prove just about anything with statistics when you don't include, you know, irrelevant statistics. And I, I just, just kind of sloughed it off. But, I mean, all you need to do is go down to Pearl and Portland go down to Manhattan. I've been in Manhattan a few times uh, since you know, all of this has kind of played itself out. Done. In fact, I'm on a board, like I mentioned earlier, uh, for a developer in Seattle. They had an, an excavator stolen in broad daylight. They have the film of the, of the theft. Because we're talking about like a half a million dollar piece of equipment. And when they reported it, Police. The police said, we're sorry, we don't have the manpower to handle it. If somebody had been killed, we could do something. <coughs> That's where we are. No wonder people are looking to move. <laughs> uh, we've got a range of problems, inflation, shortages, breakdown, work stoppages, and the great wave. The great wave is just a, it's just a reality. It's not like it's something that there's even a debate about. 
you're familiar with Peter Zahan, sort of the things that he, uh, you know, sort of addresses in his own books and podcasts and so forth, essentially, you know, uh, it's just like a slow moving sort of uh, collapse. We just have not produced enough people to sort of take uh, the institutions that would be left behind and keep them uh, solvent. It's just that simple. We see it in China. I remember when we thought China was just going to take over the world. I mean, it's looking like they're going to have a hard time just making it as a, as a nation at this point. Um, by the way, the, the word is out. They have been overestimating the number of people in their population for years. They're like 100 million people fewer than they said they were. This is why business is moving away in part by, by some of the things that they're doing. Uh, you know, are what are what they are are the case. Now, one of the things that also has sort of uh, cropped up in the midst of all this is this weird sort of turning against human, the human race that we see uh, among our institutions. And this particular author notes this. He says, "I've arrived at a framework for understanding what's going on. Uh, there are two kinds of institutions in our society." Uh, there are human eliminationist institutions, and there are human nurturing institutions. A human eliminationist institution is an organization whose fundamental logic is the removal of people from the core functionality of society at large. In other words, these are people are seen to be, well, are looked are viewed as a, a problem uh, because of the carbon load. Or because they aren't as efficient as machines, and so forth. And so they're just simply looked at as people that will end up having to take care of, you know, with some kind of guaranteed income scheme, uh, probably put on some kind of reservation so they don't cause too much trouble. Uh, or we can think about human beings the way we've always thought about human beings, and that is as images of God with talent and potential blessing, and that's what human uh, nurturing institutions do. Now, people, according to this author, are going to clamor more and more for the second. Uh, he says, I think uh, it's going to be rough in a way we have not seen in the developed world for some time due to the upcoming challenges of the next several decades. I think people will be clamoring to get themselves admitted into networks that can deliver community, resources, protection, and opportunity. A poorly functioning general society makes the idea of community not only relatively more attractive, but an absolute necessity. And I think that's uh, something that we've been thinking about where I am for a little while. I like to talk with you a little bit about, or describe a little bit for you what we're up to uh, in Battleground. So I'm sure you've heard of the Benedict Option. The Benedict Option is an attempt by Rod Dreher to address some of the things that I've been discussing. Um, but there are options. It's not just one option, there are options. And my conviction is that the genius of Protestantism, or at least part of the genius that uh, we have historically been uh, you know, benefited from is the focus on the household as opposed to the monastic and celibate uh, approach to the practice of the Christian faith. The problem with Rod, Rod has several problems, but the problem with Rod <laughs> is that uh, whenever he, he's like, like reaching for an example in some kind of monastic community in Italy or France or something, okay, great, man, we were a bunch of serfs so we needed educate us on how we to develop our agricultural practices. Great, I get it. But that's not where we are. In fact, the last thing we need is more celibacy. That's the last thing we need. We need people. We need lots of them. So uh, one of the communities that I think has done a great job uh, is you know, folks in Moscow, I hope. Uh, but they didn't actually set out to do this. They had a whole other set of things in mind, and it's sort of just kind of almost accidental that now they're kind of a model. But 
what we have in Moscow is not something we have any interest in competing with. We have kind of like a non-verbal non-compete. <laughs> so that we're not going to try to do the things they did. And what they did is they focused on classical education and the arts. And that's great. I write for them. They're not the only people I write for, but I write for them. And I, I'm on the board of New St. Andrews College. I think the things that they do are, are really marvelous. But that's not Ballarat. So what are we doing about it? Well, um, our focus is essentially unsexy, essential businesses. What I mean by that is that they're the kinds of things that absolutely have to get done, but the cool kids don't want anything to do with them. An example would be industrial transformers. You probably don't even know what they are, but you see them every day. They're all around. When electricity is generated, it's generated in such volume that if it were just piped directly into your house, your house would burn down. <laughs> so a transformer transforms the flow of electricity and breaks it down to the, to the level where your house doesn't burn down and actually runs your equipment, runs your refrigerator, that kind of stuff. Um, so one of the fastest growing companies in America is owned by one of my church members. And it, Bill's industrial transformers. And we have people moving to Battleground from all over just to work there. But not just because it's a growing enterprise, but also because our church is there. So the combination of our church and the business has turned our location in Battleground into a, a magnet to drawing people from all over the place. And that's not the only business. We've got another business that uh, is a high-tech firm, but it does uh, essentially unsexy high-tech stuff. Uh, it's basically involved in the real estate world and works with uh, large landlording or landlord uh, or investment groups in real estate. And those are a couple of the major uh, employers and actually employ the majority of my congregation. But there are other businesses, smaller businesses, kind of boutique businesses that are getting developed. There's Allen Ernie's which is the bakery coffee shop, which is being built right now, right on Main Street Battleground. It's owned by some of our people. There's Spurgeon's, which is the new uh, property that uh, will be converted into a, a tobacconist and cigar shop. Uh, I'm actually going to be heading up <laughs> the business side of Spurgeon's. Anyway, so that's going to be a lot of fun. You've got Brimstone, which is a gunsmith. We've got a number of other businesses. Uh, and we're actually uh, building an industrial park for business development. And in the middle of that industrial park will be our new church, uh, 60 acres, that are under the control of some of our elders. So that's what's going on in Battleground. And you can see things like that developing in other places, too. It's not just Moscow and Battleground. There are other examples that I could point out to you. And it's not just in the reform world. Just north of Moscow is Coeur d'Alene, which is a huge center uh, for traditionalist Catholics. And, it's, and there, there's actually a kind of an interesting dynamic between Moscow and Coeur d'Alene that's kind of mutually uh, sort of uh, supportive. There's a lot of business uh, stuff that goes on between the two communities. And I'm talking about traditionalist Catholics in the sense large homeschooling families. The kind of Catholics that the Pope doesn't like. <laughs> anyway, if you know the internal workings of the of the Catholic world, it's not as sort of homogenous and uh, sort of implacable as people on the outside tend to think it is. There's a lot more. I mean, you got Marxist nuns in the Catholic Church. So now establishing a greenhouse. This is what I want to finish with, and I'm going to have to be quick here. I'm afraid I've got to get on the plane at 11:30. So uh, why we need great houses in our time? Well, I already noted that, but establishing greenhouse. First of all, you need a worthy vision. Worthy vision, and, and uh, Abraham had that. Uh, and it was given to him, it wasn't dreamed up. And it was costly, he had to leave things behind in order to uh, uh, acquire and receive what he was promised. He had to set out into the unknown, unknown to him, obviously not unknown to God. And when it comes to establishing any kind of new thing, that's the way it works. We need people with greater risk tolerance. Uh, and the way you acquire greater risk tolerance is by 
creating requiring a greater measure of faith, not just in yourself and your abilities, but in God. And uh, in his case, too, he had lesser houses that depended upon him. And I think we need to reconcile ourselves to that. Our, our, our little houses are not going to be all on the prairie, like little house on the prairie. As wonderful as little house on the prairie was, uh, I think that what we need are great houses that shelter lesser houses. And there's nothing derogatory about being the head of a lesser house. It just means that God, in some, for some reason, God's own wisdom has blessed this particular household with resources and the ability to build something that God chose to build through that house. And it's intended to be a blessing just as Abraham's house was intended to be a blessing for all the families of the earth. So this is not like a winner take all kind of thing at all. But families have to be at the center. Um, now, where great houses fall is when self-centeredness and anti-family ideologies uh, take hold of the heirs. We saw that with Rehoboam. Um, we saw Senator lost sight of the fact that these houses did have a portion in David, that he should have taken that into consideration as he thought about his policies, but he didn't. He was thinking about himself exclusively. We see it, the anti-family ideologies infiltrating our houses in, in evangelicalism. We actually have a kind of post-familial wing of evangelicalism now, which discourages uh, the uh, work of bringing new children into the world. So you have to have a worthy vision, and uh, that is key. And then you have to have worthy heirs. And great houses historically had a plan for the development of the heirs. Uh, it wasn't just, I just wanted to be happy. That wasn't a plan. Right. Now what you're trying to raise is people who can shoulder the responsibility of keeping the great house going. That's the thing you got to do. And that's something that doesn't happen automatically. Like you don't win a marathon by accident. It's like, I was just walking down the street and I saw a bunch of people running. I thought, hey, I'd like to run. So I started running. Next thing you know, I was out front. I was cruising along and next thing you know, I win. It doesn't happen that way. There's training, discipline, you know, effort. All of those things uh, are in play. And the greatest heir of them all, we're told in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, was perfected by suffering. Now, you know, as parents, it's not very common to hear yourself think, you know what, this kid needs some more suffering. Now, maybe you might feel that way every once in a while when the kid's acting up, but, you know, it's not like part of your plan. I want this kid to suffer. Because, you know, if he needs to do that, it's going to be great. But that really is the way people in the past thought about it, preparing the air. If, have, you seen, have you seen the film Dune, by the way? Uh, for, uh, is it uh, George Herbert's Dune, if you've read the book? Basically, it's, it's the medieval world in outer space. Kind of cool, kind of cool concept. The great houses, the house of Trades, covers an entire world. And the heir, Paul Atreides, is being trained to become the new head of house. Guess what? There's a martial element to it, and at any given moment, Bernie Halleck might attack him. Why? Because a lot of people want him dead. And he needs to prepare him for that by helping him stay on edge, stay on his toes, stay aware, that kind of stuff. We need to think in those terms. What are we trying to accomplish when it comes to the raising of our children? I don't think we think about that enough. They shouldn't be sheltered, per se. They should be perfected. The word there in the, in the Greek is telos, which means uh, goal or purpose. And virtue is absolutely essential uh, for the heirs. The virtue I'm thinking about, uh, you know, virtue of the word, which means manliness in Latin. Uh, arete is the Greek word that's sometimes translated as virtue and excellence. Uh, so there's a task orientation that we need to have with our children as we raise them. Uh, we have to be thinking about more than whether they like us or not. 
whether they like this particular thing they're being told to do or not, or whether they even understand why we want them to do what they're being told to do. Remember, Friday Kid, wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. If you, if you haven't seen it, you better watch it. But anyway, so they, there's this kid, he's being trained uh, to be you know, a fighter, uh, and you know, his mentor uh, is using him to, to wax things. <laughs> and he doesn't understand the purpose for this. He, you know, the, the, the master just says, wax on, wax off. Don't ask questions, wax on, wax And then he's like, finally he gets to the point where he's like, exasperated at his, you know, his reasonable limit. I don't want to do this anymore. He wants to quit. And then uh, his master, Mr. Robbie, I think his name was, tries to hit him, and he does this. Ha! Wax on! <laughs> he blocks the, the hit. Next one. Ha! Wax on! <laughs> you know, next thing you know, you go, okay, there was some logic here. There was a reason for this stuff. Now, it would have been nice to know what the reason was, but it, that wasn't the thing. And the main thing was learn to do this, and there's a purpose, and Maybe someday I'll tell you why. <laughs> but the thing to keep in mind with this, as we're training our children, the, the, the goal is not to control them, but to help them control themselves. It's not an exercise in delighting in our mastery over our children, but helping them to learn self-mastery. We want them to become masters of their appetites, masters of their mind, sort of their thinking process. We want them to be masterful. And that's the goal, because we expect them to take on a great deal of uh, responsibility someday, particularly if we have something to leave to them. And one of the things that we saw in New England, this was uh, something that comes out a little bit in uh, George Gildersley's book. Uh, well, it's not his latest book, it was one of his early books, on Man of Marriage. But in that book, he talks about his childhood a little bit. And you know, he grew up in way I'm describing. Uh, he was the grandson of Tiffany, the Tiffany, you know, like the Art Deco stuff and all that kind of stuff. So super wealthy family. His godfather was a Rockefeller, for goodness sake. So he's like part of the Brahmin class. That's the term we use for the old families. And they still are there. In fact, I remember when I went into uh, the Union Club, which is right on the common, right down the hill from the State House. I was invited by a bush. Uh, Jamie Bush, who's cousin to W. <laughs> and so I was there, and I walk in, and it's like something like right out of like the 19th century. And I walk up to the table that's like the reception area, and there is the New England Genealogical Register. Looked to see if I was in there. <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> but that, that's the world that, you know, the old Brahmin class inhabited. And it was considered kind of like finishing school to, to uh, uh, spend some time in the military. It was a place where you learned, you know, how to relate to people who weren't part of the Brahmin class. It was a it was a way for you to connect with people who were from all over the country. Uh, and the old Brahmin families thought that this was finishing school if you were going to be in public service or something. If you were going into politics, you had to spend time in the military. Not the case anymore. They've gone soft. They just want their kids to be happy. <laughs> but George Gilder was a Marine. Grandfather was a Tiffany. Godfather was a Rockefeller. And he was a grunt in the Marines. Pretty interesting. Don't see that very much. Anyway, I'll finish uh, with a couple of further thoughts. Um, we need to accept that things aren't always going to work out the way we want. And we need to have kind of plan B in mind. An example of plan B is Jacob. Who was the one who was the rightful heir? As Esau, right? Esau was kind of like a ray of bone. Now, Isaac didn't necessarily see this. Uh, he liked, he favored Esau. And we're told why, because he was a tasty meat. <laughs> right? And uh, you recall that he devalued his inheritance. He was willing to sell it for a bowl of stew. Right? That revealed something. 
about Esau's character, his inability to see the significance of what was in store for him. Then, of course, you know, uh, Jacob's mother, who has a sense of who really should carry the family lineage forward and carry it on, uh, conspires with Jacob to steal the blessing for that episode. But we know that the blessing belongs to Jacob, not because of those things, but because what? Jacob wrestled. I will not let you go until you bless me. He wrestled away the blessing from his older brother because he wanted it. He had the desire, he had the thumos, he had the spirit. He demonstrated that he was the true heir. And he is. And when we remember, you know, God's self-identification, I am the God of your fathers. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not Esau. So, bad news is, is that we need to be prepared. I'm going to say something that is like almost heretical. Family circles disinherit. We need to be willing to do that because the purpose is that important. It doesn't mean you don't love the kid. This means you don't want to like hand over the business to the kid, <laughs> right? right? So what we need to think about is how do we develop the young people who can carry forward the vision? And we see a couple of the interesting examples, and I'll finish with this. Marcus Aurelius, considered the last of the great emperors. Uh, there were five good emperors, according to the historians, and he was the last. Do you remember what his son's name was? Commodus. You go from the best to the absolute. What's interesting is that uh, Aurelius was adopted by Antonius Peace. So apparently, and I don't know enough about Antonius Peace to know, I don't know if he was childless or if he just didn't think his kids were up to the task, but he adopted uh, Marcus with the intention that he would be the new emperor. And the whole childhood of Marcus Aurelius was watching his father in action, his adopted father in action. And if you read the meditations, you'll see him reminiscing about his father, you know, how much he admired him, his self-control, his humility, which was a fascinating thing to hear him say or read. He thought his uh, adoptive father, his stepfather, uh, was uh, a man of remarkable character. And that was reflected in his own life. Now, I think, you know, when we think about the larger purpose that we serve, obviously we belong to a great house, an eternal house, the household of God. Whatever purpose we serve is, in some sense, a subset. We're a lesser house. No matter how great your house becomes, you're always a lesser house, subjected to the great house, the one that will never end. Your house will come to an end. Maybe you'll have a good run like the Herder family seven, eight generations, but eventually the Herder family, in fact, I think the Herder family is kind of on its last legs, based on what I saw. I don't know, I'm not an authority, I didn't have any access to the documents or the financials, <laughs> but I wonder. And um, with that in mind, you know, what we need to do is think about ourselves in the way that Joshua thought about himself, and the Israelites thought about themselves. You know, from Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, Choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Thank you.